Well, our study, as we've talked about it up until now, has brought us to conclusions often about doctrine and practices that are black and white. This is good. This is a good thing. Um, We have no doubt that the Bible teaches certain specific things. We learn that one thing is right and another thing is wrong. And every honest student of scripture comes to these kinds of conclusions. This is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. This is what God would have me to do. This is not what God would have me to do. And everyone who deals honestly with the scripture comes to these conclusions and we're certain about them. But then there's other topics. Sometimes they're something that is more complex than the Bible describes, you know, in a single verse or passage of scripture. Sometimes they're matters just that simply uh, haven't been dealt with because of the age in which the Bible was written. Sometimes they're things that are specific to our lives that obviously aren't dealt with in the scripture. They're almost always matters of some personal application. What do I do on this? What do I come to believe on this? And they're not directly addressed in the text. I mean, you don't just read a passage that says, here's how you deal with that. And so we're left as individual believers to work through and work out what to do and what to believe about these things. And so while they're not addressed directly, I think the scripture still does guide us and it often tells us how to come to conclusions. It doesn't tell us the conclusion necessarily, but it comes, it tells us how to come to conclusions. And it tells us the attitude we must have towards those who come to different conclusions. Because this may be the case sometimes. We come to a conclusion that we believe we've been led to using scriptural principles and someone else comes to a different conclusion with the same belief that they have used scriptural principles. Romans 14 is a great text to help us with this. In fact, it's kind of the, the quintessential text. If you begin to ask people about how the church in particular is supposed to deal with these issues of gray areas, Romans 14 is often the place that, that we go. And I think it will convince us this passage that study actually can help us with these gray areas. Meaning it's not for us just to say something like this. Oh, well, that Bible doesn't address that. So, oh, well, I've got no guidance then. That, that's not the conclusion we're supposed to come to. But there are a few things we want to address here from the start. And actually are things we just need to kind of help each other remember. It's not as though we've forgotten them, but we just need to think through them again. Christians are different. 
right? You look around our auditorium on a, on a Sunday morning or a, a Sunday night like this, like we gathered all together last Sunday night, and you look around and you uh, come to the conclusion pretty readily that Christians are different. I mean, we see things differently. Our sensibilities and our sensitivities are different. We have experienced the world in different ways, many times in different places, different cultures, different uh, temperaments of the people we grew up with and the people we spent time around. And we are convinced of different things. Romans 14, 5 puts it this way. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So two Christian men come to a different conclusion. You saw them come to it. One man esteems one day above another. The other man esteems every day alike. They've come to different conclusions on the same matter. The conclusions they have come to are personal. It may be because of some of these things we talked about, just because they're different, because they see things differently. Their sensibilities, their sensitivities are different. They've experienced the world in different ways, and they've become convinced of different things. But we can be fully persuaded, as it says here, about certain practices and certain activities based on personal experience. In the church at Rome, as we'll see from today's text, there appears to have been at least two separate tracks of experience. Okay? I think this example is going to help us. It appears that first, there were some Jewish believers that previous lived by, previously, before they became Christians, lived by the law's dietary restrictions and lived according to the special religious days that they observed in the Old Covenant. That's the first track. Of, of people who, who had that experience. The second would be those who have previously worshipped idols. They offered meat and they offered wine offerings to idols, and then they sold or purchased leftover portions in the market before they came to know Christ. So we seem to have these two different experiences among the people who are part of the church at Rome. And so it's not difficult to imagine that these past experience experiences, and who knows how many others, we're not told about all the other experiences that they perhaps had, because there, there could be a lot. They were impacting their present-day Christianity. I mean, in the Roman church, these things were impacting what they did and how they behaved. And since their experiences were so different, 
it was more likely, not absolutely likely, but more likely that conflicts could occur. You know, this is sometimes the case. When there is such a variety of historical experiences among the body, there, it provides for opportunities for there to be conflict. I'm not saying that that requires that there be conflict. It just provides the opportunity for there to be conflict. And just as they experience that, we, we have experiences in our lives that impact us today and our Christianity today and what we think and what we say and how we interact and the things that we do. Um, in this context, perhaps there were some that didn't understand the advantages of the new covenant, right? Maybe there were those that were these Jewish believers who previously lived by the law and by the dietary restrictions of the law and by these days, these religious days that were um, given to them by God in the old covenant. Perhaps they didn't understand the advantages of the new covenant. Maybe they had doubts about whether or not they should celebrate a holy day or whether they should follow some of the old covenant dietary laws at this time, at right, at, right then in the Roman church. In fact, there were lengthy discussions in the early chapters of Romans, chapters 2, 3, and 4, about the law, about righteousness, and about faith, and how those things interact and how they're related. So we know that there was some explanation about this that happened. Perhaps others were so disgusted by the wickedness of their former life of idolatry that they could no longer bear to eat meat purchased at the marketplace. I mean, they might have thought to themselves, you know what, I'll just eat vegetables. I remember the, the, the mess that I was involved in, in past times. And I don't want to go anywhere near that again. So they would try to avoid any sort of internal conflict for themselves or any sort of grief of conscience. They would want to try to avoid that. We know for sure that others simply believed, look, it's just meat, all right? It's no big deal. And those people were able to eat meat offered to idols with no doubt, with nothing troubling their conscience. I've given away a little bit of what was happening here, but we'll read about it in a minute. We have some details in the early part of the chapter, beginning in verse 2. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. God hath received both of them. What it's really talking about. So we're not talking about one good believer and one bad believer. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We're not talking about one right believer and one wrong believer necessarily. If, uh, 
If one of you are stronger than me and I am weaker than you, well, that makes you better than me, right? No, that's not what it's talking about. We tend to think strong, good, weak, bad. That's not what it's talking about, strong, good, and weak, bad here. doesn't make you better than someone if you're stronger. doesn't mean that, that the weaker person is worse. It means that we differ. But it says in the passage here that we're both accepted or we're both received by God. And so this is not a passage where any believer finds justification for what they're doing, finds justification for himself or herself, or finds something that they can hold against or hold over another brother. Right? That's not what the passage about, is about. So we shouldn't find that in here. In fact, verse 12 says this. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Just so we're reminded of this, every one of us is going to give an account to God. So whatever attitude we may have, whatever justifications we have taken for what we've done or whatever we've decided to hold over someone else, we should just know that we are going to answer to God for that. No matter what our, what our position may be, both of us have responsibilities. We've been given responsibilities. And no one's off the hook for continuing with godly action and godly attitude. In fact, we must continue in godliness in our attitude and action. I think we see how this is possible right from the beginning of our passage of the day. We're starting in Romans 14, 14 today. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. I just want you to think about that verse for a moment. Think about what is being said there. I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him, it is, it is in fact unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably or in a loving way. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. There's a lot in here. I'm going to go on quite a long time on just these two. Verses, but I hope you'll stay with me. It's possible for us who are believers to be lacking charity, to be lacking love for others. And if we are, love can be absent in both our actions and in our attitudes, sometimes in both, sometimes in either or. And if we are prepared to elevate our liberties, our liberty in Christ, above our responsibilities to our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We may be a lot of things, but we are not loving. Did you notice what the passage said? It said, if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, not with the meat they were going to eat and decided not to, but with the meat that you're eating, if they're grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Now, I said things very carefully here because I wanted you to understand what I was saying. If we elevate our liberties above our responsibilities to our brothers and sisters in Christ, said that very carefully on purpose, then we're not loving. We may be a lot of things, but we're not loving. If we do something, in this case, eat meat that was offered to idols, in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ, causing them grief, then we're not walking in Christian love toward them. You know that we can even be right. I mean, the facts can be on our side and we can still be unloving at the same time. Now, Sometimes we don't even think about that. Well, I was right. I mean, hey, look. Look at all the details, all the facts, all, I've got all my ducks in a row and I'm right. We can be right and not loving at the very same time. Remember, if a man is convinced something is unclean to him, it is unclean. That's what the previous verse told us. We can be lack, lacking in our love and not even see this. Maybe 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 will help. I'll read that to you. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith. Now think about this for a second. This person understands all mysteries, all knowledge, and has all faith. There's a lot of right there. So I could remove mountains and have not charity. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, hey, it's not even just that they are right. It's not even perhaps that you are right, but also you do good stuff for other people. I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Not I gave a little check to something. I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Our motivations in these sensitive areas, should be love and can be love, but not when we elevate our liberties. We can also be destructive. Did you notice that in this passage? When we elevate our liberties. I mean, real harm can be caused. We may think, we may say, we may justify that this, whatever it is, is no big deal. And it might not be. Again, we might be right. But it still may cause harm. 
We can make the most accurate and the most articulate argument in the world that our liberty must be elevated in any given situation. And we may be technically right, but what we do can still be destructive. And holding on to it, whatever it is, can hurt others. We should see value in the one. Did you notice how they were described? For whom Christ died. That's how it described. This other person that we're thinking about. And so therefore, that's why we love and we avoid harming them. Our focus has to be adjusted. We must see both those within the church and those without the church as someone for whom Christ died. That's a change of focus for the person who is tempted to have their own way. You know, it's tough to willfully offend someone when you're seeing them with heavenly vision, with the kind of vision that God sees them, taking eternity and the glory of God into account when you see them. The next verse in Romans 14, verse 16. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Don't give an opportunity for your good to be evil spoken of. You know, it's possible that criticism can be justified. You want to have a barbecue for the glory of God? Remember, this is what we're talking about in this passage. I'm not giving you, a, uh, uh, giving you an example from, you know, our day. I'm giving you an example from this day where they're eating meat offered to idols. If you want to have a, a barbecue for the glory of God, take into account the truth that we're observing in this passage. Because if we don't take that into account, then a true accusation could be brought against you. Now, I make that uh, distinction for a reason, because all manner of accusation may be brought against Jesus' disciples. We know this to be the case. But they ought not to be accusations that are true. It says here, this would be, your good would be evil spoken of, and it would be true. It's not a problem for a Christian to be accused, providing the accusation is not true. But this person, this person who elevates his liberty above his responsibilities, could be doing two things. He could be, one, offending his brother. We saw that earlier in the passage. And two, damaging his own testimony. His good being evil spoken of. 1 Peter 2.16, I just want to let you know, comes in a broader context of obedience to authorities. But it can be applied in a way of encouraging us to place constraints on our liberty. You'll see what I mean. Verse 13 of uh, 1 Peter 2. I, th- I think I just said 2.16, but 13 through 17 is what I actually want to read which says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them 
sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness to hide some wrong action, but as servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Our liberty should be constrained for the sake of others. And it's it's even saying here, for our own sake as well. We're back in our text. For the kingdom of God, we're in verse 17 of Romans 14, by the way, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Our priorities should be properly set in any of these areas, these gray areas that we grapple with, and we do so often. Our priorities should be right. Meat and drink seem a rather small thing in light of the kingdom of God. Don't you agree? I mean, what am I going to eat today? I mean, that means absolutely nothing if you think about eternity. So our priorities have to be properly set. Now, I don't want you to make any mistake here. Convictions about what we should do and not do are not insignificant. This passage doesn't mean to say that, and and I don't mean to say that. They're not insignificant. They're just secondary to that which is made absolutely certain in the Christian life. Okay, so don't go about thinking, well, I have this conviction or I don't have this conviction, and therefore it's totally insignificant. It means means nothing. It doesn't mean nothing. It obviously meant something to these. In fact, they said, if this thing is unclean to you and you eat of it, it's, it's unclean indeed for you. So they're not insignificant, but they're secondary. And so don't become like sort of a no big deal Christian. What I mean by that is don't get the idea that everything is a secondary issue. This is a bad way of living as well. Just keep the primary issues forever in view. Okay? So don't think everything is no big deal. Don't think everything is secondary. But don't get totally focused on the secondary. Three key words are highlighted here. You probably noticed them. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what the kingdom of God is about. That's talking about verse 17. Righteousness comes as a result of a faith-based relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's imputed to us. And we have a righteous standing before God because of Christ's finished work on the cross. And not because 
of our avoidance of that which is bad. Right? So we don't have righteousness because we've avoided bad and done good. We have righteousness because of Christ. The same word for righteousness is found in 1 Peter 2.24, which said, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Peace also comes from Christ. He took our penalty for sin and he allowed us to transition from a place of enmity toward God to a place and a position of peace with God. This idea and this word for peace is found in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, which says, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain, or of two, one new man, so making peace. Same idea, same word. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. The state of war which existed between us and God before our salvation, no longer exists. And we are at actual peace with God. Joy is also through Christ and in Christ. You can see the next chapter of Romans for that, verses 12 and 13. And again, Esaias or Isaiah said, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There's the same word for peace as well, but joy that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy are all experienced and exhibited in right relationship with Christ, they originate in Christ, but also in right relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a bunch of passages that tell you that. Um, but we're going to move on to the next passage of Scripture. Actually, let me just let me just talk about this because I pointed. Um, I didn't really say anything about verse 18. Um, for he that in these things serveth Christ. We're talking about authentic service for Christ. That's why I pointed back to all these things being related to our position in Christ. Because again, what, what can happen in these situations is we can begin to look at the behavior and say, well, I really want to grapple with whether this is right behavior or whether this is wrong behavior. And what the passage really is telling us, don't get so distracted with that, that you misunderstand that we are in Christ and all the things related to the kingdom of God come from you being in Christ. So we we have to live in an authentic way. If we're serving Christ in these things, these difficult things that we face, these 
uncertain questions that we face. And when we serve him authentically in these things, we can be well-pleasing to God. We can be approved of men, as it said in this passage. But there is no point in time when serving self or our own self-interests becomes acceptable in these issues. There's no point in time when that becomes acceptable. Because these are personal convictions, but none of these things are about us. We must not do anything to be self-serving or simply because we want to do things. It must all be about Christ. Verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. This is an interesting one. Choices can be made to seek peace. All of this is actually about personal choices. But one of, this, one of the definitions for this term that we see in this passage, follow after, let us therefore follow after the things with make, which make for peace. The definition is to run swiftly after a person or thing. You've encountered an issue that is difficult to grapple with, that clearly some others are, are coming to different conclusions on. Where should you run? Keep in, in mind it's not about you. Run swiftly after peace. We're running after peace, and it says here too, and the things wherewith one may edify one another. So run after peace, run after edification. That pursuit, if we run after peace, we run after edification, that pursuit will lead us away from selfishness and away from conflict. Now, I want to stop for a minute here because I haven't given you any answers. I don't mean to. It doesn't bother me that I haven't given you any answers. Well, what about eating, to, what about eating the meat off for titles? You're probably not grappling with that one today, okay? But there may be one that you're grappling with. You say, well, just, just say it right out. What is the right thing and what is the wrong thing? Can I say this to you? We're in a study tonight. That is, study and convictions will study help with gray areas. What are you to do when you come upon these, whatever they may be? I hesitate to even give you one. Do you want to know why? Because God gave us some already. You will find them. You will find them. Run to peace. Run to edification, and you'll find your answers. All right. We can't be self-focused. Verse 20 of Romans 14. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. 
but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Folks, causing offense among our brothers and sisters in Christ is a problem. And I'll I'll let you in on something. Sometimes that which is permissible can be wrong. Did you notice that? I want to read the verse for you again. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Sometimes that which is permissible can be wrong. The man who holds to freedom, disregarding a brother who's fully persuaded in his own mind, is doing evil. This understanding makes it imperative for us to think deeply about issues of personal conviction. Again, I don't want to give you the idea, and this passage doesn't give you the idea, that personal convictions are something that are totally unserious to consider. In fact, they are serious to consider. We can't be flippant Christians concerned exclusively with what we can get away with. Because if we look back at our outline, we'll see the potential there is in that attitude for lacking love and being destructive, really destructive. And when we do so, when we consider deeply these things that are related to our personal convictions, when we do that, we're, we have a much better chance, let's just say it that way, of seeing the value of our brothers and sisters in Christ, those and others without, those for whom Christ died. Verse 21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. You know, we can be a person who forsakes freedom. Giving something up can be good. The biblical usage for the word good in this context can mean excellent, eminent, choice, useful, admirable. So it says, look, do something that's excellent and don't do something that's not excellent or choice or eminent or admirable. We have to desire good to do that which is good. And we see that which is good here. It says, for it is good to neither eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby our brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And it's good for us to remember James 4.17. I'm going to insert this here because it's what I immediately think of. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, not knows not to do wrong, but knows to do good, and doeth it not. 
You know to do something excellent. excellent. You know to do something choice, something useful and admirable, and you do it not. For him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Just two more verses, and I'm already over time. Hast thou faith? Romans 14, 22 asks. Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that can, uh, commendeth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You know, we can experience doubt. Believers can be uncertain. This is a lot of times the case. You'll, you'll speak with somebody and by way of advice, um, and they doubt and they're uncertain. But if we feel confident before God that a certain action or inaction is permissible, then fine. We must hold to that standard in our own conscience, before God. Verse 22, hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that commendeth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. You feel something is permissible? Fine. Hold that standard in your own conscience before God. If you have doubt, you struggle over an action or an activity or a habit or a question of culture, or a hot topic of the day, better for you to refrain. You know, whatever that thing is, it said, look, the, the Christian life is not meat and drink. It said, look, meat is a small thing compared to the kingdom of God. You have doubt over that thing, whatever that thing is. I don't know what the thing is. But we need to refrain. Christians come to different conclusions on certain matters. But we must all do things according to faith. So we have a, if we have a conviction that one thing or the other is wrong, it is wrong for us. Recall uh, two verses from elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6.12 and 1 Corinthians 10.23, they say, very similar things. All things are lawful unto me, Paul said, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. All things are lawful for me. This is verse 23 of chapter 10. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Are you unsure about something? Or is your brother or sister in Christ unsure about something? Look to the scripture. There's a myriad of principles that can inform our decision. But we have to be something. We have to be diligent to look. And we have to be diligent to apply those principles. Whatever pain they may cause, whatever difficulty they may present, we have to be diligent to search them out and use those principles, whatever they are. Will study help with gray areas? I think we've had a passage tonight that'll demonstrate 
study will help with gray areas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the kind attention of our uh, class here tonight. There's a lot of things we're going to encounter. I don't know what they all are. I don't know if we're going to be wanting to um, hold on to our own freedoms or, or whether we're going to set all manner of rules for ourselves that, that, that you don't set for us. I'm not sure which default setting that we have in our lives. Some of us have different default settings. Whether we want to hold on to our freedom in an area or whether we want to uh, hold on to restrictions that don't help. Give us things from your word, principles from your word that will help us come to right conclusions for ourselves, for us personally, and that won't be offensive to others, that won't harm others, that won't uh, cause any sort of a stir or any sort of a, um, a difficulty among brothers and sisters in Christ or among those we're trying to minister to. And I pray that as we go through our day, even tomorrow, if we encounter these things, that you would just help us and help us to be diligent, point us to your word, um, allow us to do whatever homework we need to do to come to conclusions about things. In Jesus' name, amen.